This is the Education Exchange with Paul Peterson. I am the senior editor at Education Next. Thank you for joining me. Pele Owanamea, otherwise known as Madam Pele, has been stirring again on the big island of Hawaii after a recent eruption of a volcano on the great mountain Mauna Loa, Haley's hearth and home Kilauea began to grow lava once again. And just a couple of weeks ago, I was there and saw it blowing steam and also witnessed the serious damage it did in 2018 when it poured lava down the mountainside and it destroyed a lot of land. And indeed, it destroyed a charter school, Kuokala. The rainforest and fish ponds that had been so important to Kuokala were gone. So Hawaiian charter schools at the base of a volcano are surviving today. And I was fortunate enough to learn about them because my host was Nina Buchanan, an emeritus professor at the University of Hawaii, She's a longtime supporter of the charter school movement in Hawaii, and she was able to introduce my wife, Carol Peterson, and I to four of the Hawaiian-focused charter schools. Two of them teach students in English, and two teach fully in the indigenous Hawaiian language. Nina Buchanan is with me today on the Education Exchange, so thank you, Nina, for, for joining me today. Well, aloha. Well, aloha to you, Nina. And um, it was so memorable seeing you and, and visiting the volcano. But, but another memorable moment was when we observed the protocol at uh, two of the schools on two different mornings. Um, so can you tell our listeners a bit about the protocol at these schools? Absolutely. Protocol is... Um is an amazing idea that's almost what we call a pule, a prayer for the day. But uh, in terms of protocol, it is students before they enter the campus, while they're getting ready to, to learn, to, to enter a new mindset, they must ask to be admitted. And the staff and the teachers go back and forth, making sure the kids are ready to be admitted. And the, the kids, normally the students will do an Oli, which is a chant that is asking permission. And the teachers respond, the staff responds back in Hawaiian to specific chants. And the olis can change from different times of the year. So the, the, the students learn different olis during different times of the year. And they also um, sometimes will enter by singing songs as a response to entering. Um, and it's interesting to note that that's always been a characteristic of the Hawaiian, especially the Hawaiian language schools, but also the Hawaiian focus schools have introduced that. And it is bleeding over into the larger charter school movement. And so there are 
like STEM schools and project-based learning schools and integrated learning schools that are also now incorporating protocol and, and are meeting with Kapuna, that's the older uh, folks, to help them design protocol and oles in Hawaiian that are used in the charter school. But I think even uh, the chants themselves are sort of, they remind me a little bit of what the monks sang in, in the medieval period, uh, the uh, sort of, uh, you know, a chant is actually a, a sing song. It's so it's not just, it's not spoken. It's, 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 it's put, placed on a note. And so there's a, there's a musical element to, to the, uh, to the chanting. Yes, and absolutely that's true, along with they often will blow a conch shell together the students initially instead of a bell, it's a conch shell. Oh, well, that's interesting. You missed that part. <laughs> that's interesting. I didn't know about that. So I don't know that I heard a conch shell there, though I heard it elsewhere on the island. Uh, that's a very important part of the Hawaiian tradition. Well, I noticed the students stood very straight and tall, and they didn't move, and they were divided. The, the girls were on one side, and the boys were on the other, and the female teachers were on one side, and the male ones were on the other side. And actually, I got it wrong once, and I had to be nudged over to the, <laughs> to the right side. So what is all this about? Why is everybody having to be so in a straight line and very well mannered and so forth. Well, it's part of the mindset of changing what you were doing that morning, having breakfast coming from your family and whatever happened in your family before you arrived at school. This is the time to straighten up, get your mindset on for the day and participate. Now, you were surprised by the separation of the the boys and the girls or the males and females. Actually, I was too. And I think the school that we saw it in is probably one of the most um, um, historically accurate schools started by actually a professor and um, his wife, who is a native Hawaiian, he is not, but she is, but they are attuned to doing everything historically correct. Well, they were the school that had a connection with the University of Hawaii, the, the yes. Hilo that's present in Hilo. So um, I guess they have a particular advantage because they have a university connection. They were, I, I think they were on university facilities, right? The, the physical plant, or am I wrong about that? No, you're, you're wrong about that. They, uh, they began uh, Punanaleo as a preschool program. And as they grew, they didn't have a place for their sixth grade through 12th grade to go. And a local high school, Hilo High School, then took them in as a program. And even today, they're K through, not sure whether it's, it's preschool through 
six or preschool through eight is a charter school, but the high school maintains the um, the connection to both the university and to Hilo High School, so it's a traditional DOE connection for them. Well, tell me a little bit about DOE, because our listeners do not know about DOE, even though (laughs) that's a big, big phenomenon in Hawaii. Hawaii is the one place in the United States where the state actually runs all of the traditional public schools, except for the charter schools. They're all run not by a school board, but by the state. Is there a state board of education that runs them? Oh, yes. And it has in since I've the 35 years or so I have been here, it changed from an elected board to an appointed board. And and so it's it's not necessarily. A a, a conclusion, a done deal, the legislature could change it back. So it could change it back. But right now, the governor appoints the school board. No, no, it's it's a convoluted. There are different groups that helped appoint, but it's ultimately the governor. So the governor has a lot of control over the school, but a lot of a lot of school choice advocates and the people who want to reform schools say school boards are really the problem in American education. So uh, could we solve it all by by letting the state run our schools? Is that what you would say about the you've learned about the DOE in in um, in Hawaii? I would say not in Hawaii. In my own experience, um, the DOE, the power of the DOE is on a different island. It's in what everybody thinks of when they think of Hawaii is Honolulu. But there are uh, seven habitable islands and the big island is far removed from the center of power. And in fact, that was, I think, one of the impetus for um, charter schools to begin with. My own experience was you try to make changes locally in the schools, but you don't have any power and you you can't even go to where the power is without getting on an airplane. You can't go talk to people. Therefore, the Big Island became a hotbed of charter startups. We, We were ready there were some programs in operation at various schools that then broke away and became charter schools. Well, how did uh, charter school legislation ever get passed in Hawaii? Well, um, we had a quite a progressive uh, school board chair who came from the mainland. He did not last all that long, but he was the one that made sure that happened. We had had a a movement called community-based management schools that never really, I mean, in my opinion, never really took off because it was trying to be a hybrid between, oh yeah, you can have a teeny little bit of power, but not really. So, 
Yes, so then they created this hybrid called a student-centered school. Now, those of us in school choice would say all schools should be student-centered, but this was a brand new idea to them. So they allowed, I think, two DOE schools, and I'm not sure it might be more, but um, to apply and become student-centered schools, and they would be given a little extra powers. They're still under the DOE. So when we had a, a, a superintendent, there were a lot of a, a, a sympathetic superintendent. Then we started lobbying, and there were powerful people who helped the movement and who kept getting us all organized to testify and so forth. And the first charter legislation in, I think it was 1999, um, there, there were already programs ready to submit their applications before, they, before the DOE had time to figure out what the applications would be. So, oh, so they got fooled a little bit there. Things happened uh, fairly really fast, really fast. So, but was the uh, was the Renaissance part of this? Yeah, there was in the latter part of the 20th century the beginnings of uh, the the Hawaii Renaissance, or the where people wanted to bring back uh, indigenous culture and traditions and so forth. And they were talking about having some independence too, I believe. So were they a part a part of the political movement that brought oh, about the charters? Absolutely, a big part. Uh, Punanaleo was a preschool movement, and it was to teach in the Hawaiian language, which had been outlawed at the overthrow. So it wasn't overthrow. A... Now you got to tell our listeners <laughs> what the over. I think that's the overthrow of the queen back in 1893, right? Exactly, exactly. In 93, when um, the it ended up being the U.S., but it could have been the Germans or it could have been um, other interests. Yeah, well, the Japanese were a rising uh, power in the latter part of the 19th century. Yes, politically they were, but um, they they weren't di directly a part of the renaissance of the Hawaiians themselves. So Punanaleo started with, I, I don't know where their original funding was from, but, and they were semi-affiliated with the university because that's who started them, the people at the university. And they taught in Hawaiian language, and they eventually were able to get the law changed so that Hawaiian medium instruction could happen. But Hanaleo sort of came before that. They were breaking the law. Yes, yes, yes. So, so. But now that we have these charter schools teaching in Hawaiian to not only preschoolers, but all the way up through high school in some cases, uh, is this a good thing? I mean, I mean, the, people, everybody speaks English in Hawaii, as far as I can tell, or, you know, virtually everybody does. So <laughs> you're now 
teaching people a language that's not really relevant to their contemporary daily lives and for, for getting a job and going on to college and doing all the things that we expect uh, successful young people to do. So is this really an offbeat thing that probably shouldn't go forward? Good question, Paul. You are giving the con side of the argument, but the pro side is after the overthrow and and kind of a gradual, even before the overthrow, the Hawaiians became the low ethnicity on the totem pole as far as they were very literate and quick to learn and 100% literate in their own language. But they were the, uh, they had the, the most grim health statistics they um, educationally, they did not do well. They were one of the lowest performing ethnic groups. And so they were really an unemployment and prisons being in prison. So the group that the Renaissance that started to bring back the culture was to also bring back their efficacy as people and to give them the confidence and the foundation that they didn't get in the English speaking schools. And I might point out there are there were Japanese um, language schools that kids went to as well. They went to them after school in general, but this was one way by bringing back the culture and also a, an important part of course is the land, the connection to the land and bringing back the feeling that here's what our ancestors created and here's how they came here. And you might've heard, some of your listeners might have heard about the Hokulea that is bringing back traditional Hawaiian navigation skills, and they're doing an around the Pacific trip right now. They just, I think they just took off. So it's more than just the language. It's, it's a lot to do with bringing back that pride in the culture. So I think that's always important to remember that you people need to be proud of their history, proud yeah. of their past, proud of their people if they're going to be uh, successful and able to move forward. I think that's really, uh, if you're not proud of your past, then how are you gonna be proudful and accomplished as, as you go forward? And I think that's really the, the story because if you go to these immersion schools where they are learning the Hawaiian language, and you see the students and you talk to those who have been, who are now moving into high school, they're quite um, impressive. Very, very impressive. And I do want to uh, put in that these uh, immersion schools that are charter schools follow the same legislation that all charter schools follow when admitting students they cannot uh, discriminate. 
So it's not like they can require you to be a native Hawaiian or Hawaiian or a certain blood quantum like some programs do. They have to take first come first serve. And if they have too many places, I mean, if they don't have enough spots for everybody, they do lotteries and then they have waiting lists. But they do say, or at least uh, one principal, I think, uh, told me that if at the age of seven, you're too old right. to really learn the language. So they're admitting children into their school as preschoolers or as first graders, second graders, but not much beyond that. So um, so they really are, and they'll discourage families from, from enrolling if their child is too old. I think this all, all makes sense, but... Uh, but maybe you're getting a very select group of people who are willing to do this. Then are these very upper middle class people who want to bring back the language or is this a broader segment of the indigenous Hawaiian population? Well, from what I've seen and the time I've spent in the Hawaiian focus schools, that they are not, they are not um, the upper middle class that is is a wide range there there's a wide range of students and and many of them are free and reduced lunch i think we heard that in several uh of the places we went so i think that it's probably if we looked at comparison to nearest DOE school, we would find the major difference in the ethnic makeup and less difference in the socioeconomic because the areas where the Hawaiian focus schools have situated themselves because they are connected to that land oftentimes are poorer, poorer places. So. Well, certainly their facilities are not adequate. <laughs> you know, I, I saw some, we just drove by some of these elementary schools in Hilo. I, I, I found them all sort of grim, to be honest with you, because they were so boxy and they were uh, they all were the same yellow, pale yellow color. It was like looking at a pale school bus um, and, and those were your traditional elementary schools, and they were big, huge structures. Uh, why has Hawaii chosen to, to educate their most of their children in these very large schools? Well, that was a puzzle to me when I first arrived here, because we are a very rural um, place. There are no really cities on the big island. There are towns, what we would call them towns. But the prevailing wisdom at the time when most of those schools were built was bigger is better. And it's more efficient. And it's better to consolidate. So a lot of communities lost their schools, like Volcano used to have a thriving elementary school volcano um, is a little there is a little village called volcano right yes there near, is right a near the, the real thing right right yeah and now there's a charter school in 
volcano. And, and that's one of the reasons they lost their school to the consolidation. So, um, so it's not surprising my own, I'm a founder of a charter school. And when our school was founded, we, we were a program of Konawina High School. Konawina had over 2000 kids and they were just very happy to get rid of some of them. That was the only high school on the west side of the island. And it had been consolidated and consolidated and consolidated. So that's where we ended up. Yeah, so that seems uh, like that was part of the reason for for having charters, just the other tradition. But but the charter schools don't have much in the way of facilities. I, I mean, every single charter school that we visited, and it's probably true of the charter school that you're responsible for, which I didn't have the chance to visit, but it's it, it, they just don't have adequate facilities. So why are they so inadequate? Well, we live in a rural area. There are no spare buildings, period. Um, and it, it, and it's a double whammy. If you want to be in a specific place for place-based education, there aren't buildings there, period. And so, um, you know, you start in, uh, my own school started in a, a garage that was on site at, that belonged to the state. But um, each school has had to figure out, well, how do we do this? There aren't, you know, they take houses and remodel them and they have to get rezoned because of course that's a big issue is zoning. So, um, and there are very limited funds. Uh, the USDA has given several charter schools uh, was that the U.S. Department of Agriculture? What yes. What do they have to do with this? Well, <laughs> we're a rural place. <laughs> we're a rural place, and we're doing sustainability. They consider it sustainability. And so, um, yes. And then the Hawaiian-focused charter schools have been able to get help from a variety of organizations that support the Hawaiian community, which is great. I think it's great. There is a, um, a Liliokalani Trust, there's Kamehameha Schools and Bishop Estate, and there's, uh, there's a number of OHA, Office of Hawaiian Affairs. So there are a number of possible funding sources. Never enough, but some. But they're not receiving any money from DOE for building. I mean, they get money from the state for operating costs and they get the same per pupil, I guess, for, for basic operations, but they get nothing for transportation, nothing for additional services, uh, and and nothing at all for uh, facilities and exactly. land acquisition. So, of course, they're going to be starving for adequate facilities. 
Right, and that impacts the number of students they can take and how, to what degree they can even serve their own community. Now, I have to admit that I was a little disappointed in the two non-immersion schools. I thought of the schools that I was able to see that the immersion schools looked like they were very successful. They were gaining in enrollments. They were coherent. The leadership was strong. All, all those things that make a school look like it's succeeding were, were, were there. But then when you went to the two others, they had had various misfortunes in the past. One was hit by the volcano, as I mentioned, and the other it was down to 37 students. And so does the Hawaiian focus for without the language instruction, is that working or are there did, are, are the two schools that I saw representative or, or not? It's working in some places. It is definitely working. And the, the school that was wiped out by the lava had created a beautiful campus, beautiful, from nothing. And had, you know, traditional fish ponds. It had great area for ocean study. But so they were totally wiped out. And I think they would have continued to thrive in that facility. But then the move from 2018, they've moved to a place where they really weren't, um, you know, that, that's not their place. It's not the right area for them. And then the other one lacked facilities and, and moved, has moved a couple of times, again, trying to find facilities and trying to serve their neighborhood. Um, that is really, that's really difficult, but there are thriving Hawaiian focused schools like in Waimea, there's a great example of a preschool through 12 uh, school started by Ku Kahakalau really a fabulous uh, impetus to the charter school movement. And it's thriving. They have language classes, but it's primarily taught in English. So now my, our listeners are going to say, okay, very, very, very well indeed. Uh, that's all nice to learn about Hawaii, but what, <laughs> what is the broader lesson here? Is there anything that uh, this says to the mainland. And I've been thinking about this since uh, since the visit, Nina. And one of the things that has occurred to me is that we need to have more character education in the United States. We need to have, now you said they begin with prayer because this is actually the protocol is a little bit like a prayer. I don't know if we can ever have religious charter schools. Uh, maybe yes, maybe no, but we need to really... Maybe, maybe schools need to focus as much on character development as on academic skills and so forth. What, what do you think of that? Well, I think that's part of the SEL movement that really, uh, I, I, some charter schools have affirmations that the kids do in the morning, 
as part of their character development and as part of a semi uh, protocol in getting ready for learning. Um, but yes, we, we need it. And one way to bring it in is through these protocols and, and looking at Hawaiian as a good example of that. And the other uh, part of the story that seems to me very general is, is, the, is the difficulty of finding space for charters all across the country, the inadequacy of facilities, the setting up of charter schools and shopping malls that are abandoned shopping malls or schools that have been have deteriorated and, and are being sold off for one reason or another. And and uh, they have to scratch all the time. And this is really uh, one of the, if we were to transform charter school education, it would be by providing a much more sustained basis for capital development in the charter sector. Absolutely. That would should be a priority. Um, I know people concentrate on, well, we need more authorizers. Well, not really. If you if you can't situate a school and you can't get the people together and the students together, well, you're not going to be able to be very successful. So it's it's never been quite clear to me why this wasn't thought through from the very beginning. Why did charter schools never find it easy to get the capital costs that every school needs? Well, I think the idea was charters can do it for less. So therefore they can do it without facilities. They can figure it out if they're really gonna be you know, the entrepreneur spirit and they're going to be successful, they'll figure it out. Well, how optimistic are you, Nina, about the future in Hawaii of the charter schools as a whole and the Hawaiian focus, the immersion schools and specifically? You, you, are you, do you see a path forward or, or not? Well, I don't necessarily think it is with having more and more and more charter schools, um, unless there are um, there are reasons to have them. If you want to create another school that's just like DOE, only smaller, the DOE should be doing that. But I'm I'm hopeful that we have a critical mass that we will impact and we are making impacts on the DOE and what they do. So um, I'm, I'm optimistic about the charter schools that already exist. I don't know, frankly, how many more and where charter schools can be successful. So well, so thank you very much, uh, Nina, for sharing your insights, understanding, and experience uh, with charters in, in Hawaii. It's been great uh, having an opportunity to see them and, and to uh, share what we have learned uh, with our audience. So I, I appreciate your joining me uh, on the <laughs> Education Exchange. <clears throat>
not a problem. I'm proud of my adopted state and what we have accomplished. And I am an optimist. It will get better. <laughs> I have been speaking with Nina Buchanan, a professor emeritus at the University of Hawaii. She's an expert on charter schools in that state. I am Paul Peterson. This is the Education Exchange. Please join me for a new Education Exchange podcast released on the Education X website every Monday at noon Eastern time.